this out. So it's better to just kind of lead into the conversation because when it starts on five, four, three, two, one, you're like, oh, everyone my just God. goes silent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Planes. Yeah, but thank you again for uh, for taking the time this morning. Oh, my uh, pleasure, Dave. Because I feel like I'm imposing people um, as it comes to these things, you know. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely not. And it definitely is a little bit, I know you just started this. It, it already feels long overdue. I just wanted to start, I mean, by saying thank you for what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're going at this from, you know, a couple different angles and just, I think having a location for people in the aviation industry to, in, in, and even people outside the aviation industry to see the types of careers that are, are there, but to then also come together and, be able to to talk to each other about what we do. Um, it is a small industry, and a lot of us are connected. It's kind of six degrees of separation is almost too much. It's almost two or three degrees yeah, of separations in a lot of ways from being able to help each other out in our respective roles within this industry. And so it's cool that you're working to to bring us all together and and have these conversations and putting the blogs up that you're having. So um, just wanted to thank you for that. No, I appreciate it. It's a whole thing. I don't think I've even addressed it on the podcast yet because the whole idea has been two or three years in the making. I'm like, how can I take my ADHD and make this something more like a hobby almost, turn it productive? So uh, part of it was the blog. And then after a while, somebody's because I don't know about you, um, whack when I had a Twitter, I was told I had good tweets. And that was one of the biggest compliments anyone can give me. And then when uh, I got off Twitter, anyways, I, st- I, I won't forget that, but I read an article that said people with good Twitters are usually good podcasters, and I was like, well, this article is meant to be, and so lo and behold, here we are today. So I definitely want to get into what you do for, for work, um, but first, can I tell you about my... I'm coming to you live from Erie, Pennsylvania, aka the most accessible city. Yeah, what are you, what are you doing There's there? a conference here, and I, I, I mean this like in a jokingly way because it's actually a beautiful city, and like I'm looking out my hotel right now at like a marina and a bunch of boats that I want to own. I Okay, getting there is where the trouble started because Erie only has two flights a day from Charlotte, and those two flights a day aren't cheap. And besides, you know me, I'm a Southwest boy. I got to find a way to fly Southwest if I'm going to get there. So, you know, it was either between Cleveland and Buffalo. Now... And all due respect to the people that live in both of those cities, not the best decision to uh, have. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're picking two of lesser evils. Um, So I went Cleveland, and I think most people I know went with Cleveland. And so I got there, and let me tell you, so the first flight, you know how the flight attendant goes up and down the aisle before takeoff? The person before me was like watching the flight attendant, and then they took their seats for departure. And then this asshole kicks his uh seat back into recline like and first off if you don't understand why like the why that the seat has to be not reclined it's for the it's for me <laughs> it's because i don't die when something happens so this person consciously waited for the flight attendant to pass through the aisles and then kick the the seat back into. it's not that big of a deal just wait five ten minutes we're already at the runway you know what i'm saying so this is the flight to Cleveland. I'm assuming this person's from Cleveland. It fits my agenda. So I'm just going to say that this person was from Cleveland. I was like, well, this is how we're going to start. Shout out to all of our Cleveland listeners. <laughs> Shout out to all the Cleveland listeners. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and so what do you think this person does as the approach checklist comes through? Same thing. Sorry, um, I, I should probably, let you answer that. Yeah, let same me ask, thing let, or... let me ask again. Let me ask again. Ryan, 
What do you think this individual did when we were approaching the airport and the pilot's going through the approach checklist, you know, she's cleaning the trash at 10,000 feet, double ding, you know, what do you think this person did? I can I can imagine it was either the exact same thing or dashing for the uh, the bathroom or checking on the uh, the carry on luggage in the overhead. Right, you know, one of the things that they specifically outlined not, not to do. do. Right. Well, I can tell you that it was you are right. It was the exact same thing he did on the way out. The flight attendant walked down. He looks. I, I see him look to see the flight attendant sit down, and then he puts it back into recline. And it's like, it wasn't even in recline then. So what, it's like he read an article or something that said that you should be sitting in recline when the plane takes off and lands for your safety. It's, it's crazy to me. So (laughs) I'm dealing with that. It's funny that he waited for these instructions to take place. It's almost a, um, like a subconscious rebellion (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's going on here. Like I'm told not to recline my seat. So that means recline. Recline. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Anyways, I got to Cleveland. Fine, no big deal. I, I should have wrote most of this down because I feel like I'm forgetting a couple of things. So, but regardless, um, the next day I am a plane spotter. You, Ryan, you uh, attest to this because in college, that's all we did is plane spot on the weekends. So it's almost an understatement, but there's there's no other word yeah. for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like listening to live ATC on the way to plane spot so that we know which of the various plane spotting locations to, to, to arrive to. And then listening to the airport's ATIS to ensure that, um, that the, the, the wind isn't, uh, isn't on the, on the change and, and that runways aren't being adjusted as we near the destination of whatever various <laughs> plane spotting location that might be the top level. <laughs> I know, I know that's as, as extreme as you can get. And that's where we were at. And, and uh, honestly, it plays into my whole anxiety type of thing. Cause that's anxiety to the max was in terms of the plane spotting. It's getting to the, it's getting to the location. And then all of a sudden, oops, we're changing the configuration on you. That changes everything. Uh, especially since we didn't have a spot for one threes really, you know what I'm saying? So like, uh, Ryan, you bring a good point. There's a lot of mental health to talk about for plane spotting. Uh, that was a joke. I don't know. But <laughs> um, I'm trying to bring some humor to the pod. Yeah, yeah. Trying to bring some humor to the pod. So, all right. So one of the locations online was the parking garage at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. And so historically speaking, these... Uh, these um, parking garages are high security. You can't really plane spotting from a garage, right? So I showed up to the garage. I'm like, all right, let's just, whatever I get, I can get. If I have to move, I have to move. So I get up to the top of the garage and what do I see? Homeless people everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It was not a great, uh, it was not a great feeling. I mean, just from an airport administration perspective, like you're supposed to, the parking garage is historically a, target for terrorist activity you want to protect it because like you know it's supposed to be built a certain way uh, distance away from the terminal it's supposed to be checked every so often so i was a little turned off by that because i was saying okay well now i know cleveland doesn't pay attention to the rules they're supposed to be paying attention to so anyways i, I shot for a couple hours i didn't i don't really get like nervous with that so yeah and then finally i was driving to the bus station yesterday greyhound and because that's what I had to do. I had to go to Cleveland and Greyhound into Erie. And I tell you, the uh, I had a good Uber driver. This uh, lady, I, Mama Badger is what she called herself. And uh, <laughs> actually, that wasn't her that gave her that nickname. It was the Kelsey brothers. She grew up, I guess, a couple houses down. 
It was actually an interesting story because the whole thing came to be because we passed the the Guardian Stadium and uh, she was talking about the Guardians and I said I have a friend who used to who I play with. Shout out Aaron Savale. He was on my baseball team. Now he's pitching for the Guardians. Now I think he got traded to Tampa Bay. But in in general, I was just the whole thing was I, I know somebody and he, she's like, oh, you're not going to believe this. I grew up. Uh, Two houses down from the Kelsey brothers, they call me Mama Badger, and they said, "Mama Badger, if you ever need anything, you let me know." And she's like, "I've been tempted to call them, but I just can't get myself to do it." And I'm like, "Okay, well, that's very nice of you, Mama Badger." <laughs> Quite the Uber ride. She got five stars and a good tip for me because that's the type of person I am. But regardless, like that, now I'm an Erie, so uh, I'm sure there's details I'm leaving out because uh, I I told myself I would write down these experiences. Oh, uh, the last one was um, I was sitting down waiting for the Uber just to go to the plane spot and uh, a family of deer walks up like over my shoulder, not afraid of me in the least. I was like, I think I'll move. I had to freeze first, but it was, uh, I was like, I'll, I'll go sit on the other bench. And I heard that correctly, that that you Ubered to plane spot? Is that yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> no, no. And again, all I'm saying is there's a level of plane spotting to be achieved and <laughs> There's there's uh there's listening to the ATIS, there's there's checking the uh the listening to the live ATC and yeah. to those locations. I mean, those are all badges of honor. Yeah, they are. And it's funny because there's a game to it because people you know people don't understand plane spotting and, and, and why. So I just act like I'm leaving. They're like, Oh, where are you going today? And of course my drop off location was Southwest Airlines. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to Baltimore, I don't know. And then uh they're like, Oh, what's there? It's like oh it's don't ask these questions because like now I got to come up with a story. So I just, all I said was work. Um, I just, I was like, I got a, like I said, I had a conference because uh, obviously I was at a conference. It was at the top of my head. Not that it's a Southwest hub. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, you, if, you're, if you're familiar with the capacity of Baltimore, Washington international, you'll, you'll know my flight uh, is going to a hub. Yeah. Hub and spoke. I can go anywhere in the Northeast really, including MHT, which is, Close to where you're from, Ryan. You're from uh, well, New Hampshire, right? Correct. Yeah. Now, um, from New Hampshire, so MHT was the uh, the go-to airport growing up. That was the uh, the the trip to Disney World departure point uh, type airport. <laughs> so MHT was it. Anything more major was uh, further south at um, Boston Logan. Right. Right. And so I know that wasn't your airport. Airport. I believe that KCON. I mean, I'm setting you up for these. So I'm sorry, but. Well, just kind of going through kind of how you got into aviation, I guess, if you couldn't tell already. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, got into aviation. My dad was going for his private pilot's license um, when I was very, very young. One of my earliest memories was sitting in the back of a Piper Tomahawk, I think it was at the time. And he fired up the plane and taxied around the taxiway a little bit. At least that's what my memory serves. And then shut off the plane. We didn't fly anywhere um, for that, but he wanted to at least, you know, include me. And this was very, very, very young. Um, so that was kind of my first introduction to it. The small airport near us had a couple air shows that we went to over the years. And then I think it was maybe my 10-year-old birthday or 11-year-old birthday, they gifted me Flight Simulator. And that was... That oh, was like, over. yeah, game over. That was the end. They gifted me flight simulator and a joystick. I still remember to this day, first flight was like to whatever the default airport in Texas was in a beach barren. 
I fired it up. The, the joystick wasn't configured correctly. So it was only the throttle was only on the, one of the two engines. So I just spun in circles, you know, in the beach barren on this grass strip or dirt strip in Texas in the flight simulator. And I think from there, I was like, you know what? Obviously, I'm not supposed to be spinning in circles and doing donuts. I need to figure out how this whole thing works. And from there, it turned into, let me figure this out. Um, and so I started looking into it. I took my first demo flight. My parents um, gifted me, I think, you know, a year or so later, my first demo flight at the local flight school up in New Hampshire for my 11th birthday. So now I'm in a real Cessna 172 doing a demonstration flight going around and and doing the uh, the turns around the point and just kind of the, you know, hey, would you like to fly over your house to <laughs> totally get you hooked on flying sort of demo flight? Um, the flight instructors out there know what uh, know what they're doing for sure. And it and it and it worked. Um, so from there, my very first job ever in middle school in the summers was detailing helicopters at the local helicopter um, charter and sales company. And so I did that for a couple summers in a row, working 40 hours a week in the summers, um, just making some money on the side in, in middle school. And I would take the checks from that helicopter detailing. And at the end of my workday, covered in oil and grease from cleaning the helicopters and waxing the tops of the rotor blades and oiling the bottoms of them and, and vacuuming. I mean, it, it was pr some pretty serious detailing to get these helicopters where they needed to be to then be sold. I would change out of those clothes and into something a little bit more presentable. And I would take my check over essentially to the flight school next door, hand it to them and go, I want this many hours worth of, <laughs> of flight training today. And um, I would essentially just turn, you know, turn that effort into, um, into flight hours. And so I did that for a while. And um, I then kind of started looking up towards the, the air traffic control tower at the airport and going, what goes on up there? This was a long time ago. It was post 9-11, but it being a class Delta airport, pretty small. I um, was able to get myself a tour of the air traffic control tower. Th that might still be a thing, Dave, at smaller airports. Yeah, it still does. Yeah, I think I think you can get yourself in. And, and if you're interested in this sort of thing, that's kind of always been my advice, just to kind of pause on my story here, Dave, is if you're oh, yeah. if you're interested in this, go to the airport, go to the go to the, um, you know, the, the flight training uh, school, go to the local FBO. If it's a small enough airport that um, the air traffic control tower is there and they'll let you up for a, a brief tour, take advantage of those things and, and check it out and, and definitely expose yourself. And then when you get to the point where you're old enough to, um, to, to have your first job, I think working at an FBO or working at the airport, even if your plan is to go to the airline someday or or maybe work on the, the private aviation side, which is what I do now. And I can certainly talk more about that side, but get yourself exposed to it and don't wait for the job posting to be listed. Don't go on Indeed or monster.com and, and say, oh, they're not hiring. Reach out to the airport manager and see what sort of things are available. Put yourself out there as someone who will bust your butt to, to work hard just so that you can ex get exposed to it because Dave, I mean, where you work now, where I work now, we meet a lot of people that can connect us to our next step. And one thing about aviation, and I guess this is kind of life in general, is you can you can write down your plan, you can put down what your specific plan is, and I think it's important to do that and set your your mind to it. But 
be willing to take the uh, the country road to get there is is kind of what I've always kind of thought, and I've learned that the hard way. I definitely have put myself when I when I started getting into aviation and I was taking those flight lessons. I had it very exact to what I was going to do, Dave. I mean, right yeah. down to this sort of detail where I said, "I'm going to get my licenses, and then I'm going to go to the airlines for a little while." And then I'm going to leave the airlines and I'm going to get into the private world. I'm going to build up enough money where I'm going to leave the private flying world as a pilot. And I'm going to buy a, a small turboprop and I'm going to start a charter company. And that was when I was 11 or 12 years old. I was literally starting to put my plan in, in motion that I was going to do that, which is good because it puts you, you know, it puts you in a position where you've got something to, to work toward. But I think what you need to be willing um, to, to realize along the way is the fact that you know, you might get to step number two or three in your plan and there might be a new step in there, a, a three subpart B that, that occurs in life where you're going to take, you know, you're going to take a roundabout road for a second. You're going to get back on track with your road. In fact, you're not even off track. This is, you know, this is maybe part of the track to, to put you in the position where you need to be. And, and so what I've learned along the way is you can certainly plan what you'd like to do, but if you make it so specific, you're going to put yourself in the depression. I mean, you know, or, or you're going to put yourself in a sad way. I mean, if you, if you literally say at this age or at, or at this step, this is what's going to happen. You know, that's excellent and, and do that, but understand that when something comes up, that's going to shift gears for a moment, keep your eyes on the prize, call, you know, make it your North star, if you will. But, but, um, I've learned that, uh, that all those things along the way, the air traffic control things, the me switching up from being a pilot thing, all led me to where I am today. And I'm, I'm really happy where I'm at today. And um, I'm, in, I'm in aviation. Yeah, so. you're doing big things, like I said. Uh, you know, and I think there's a lot in common between our paths, um, almost identical, I would say, in some ways, where like both we both wanted to be uh, air traffic controllers for a while. Uh, we yeah. kind of, I don't know... I can't really pinpoint exactly why I stepped away. I think it was really my internship that kind of showed me airport management. But regardless, um, you know, also, too, we we grew up around airports that aren't really conducive to aviation. Now, it, I, I mean that as like a joke almost in a way. Because um, we, I always joke about Worcester being a future Emirates uh, focus city for A380s and, yes. and stuff. Um, which I, I don't know why it hasn't happened yet, but just keep your eyes out in the future. I still not abandoning that. And in airports, we're like, we're not next to a Manchester or like with like a Charlie or a Portsmouth. We can't, we have to at least, we have to seek out the aviation itself. You know, you went to detail helicopters and then went right to the flight school. Like, I don't even think Worcester had a flight school. Like I had, I lived off the, mm -hmm. my, my flight sim. My parents got me a flight sim. And for years it was yeah. the Boeing 737, the, the default um, 737-400. I would. I didn't know what autopilot was, so I would take it off, and I would be upset because I can't maintain altitude. I can't get to the airport, and I can't land it until I figured it out. And now our friend Nick has me doing flows and uh, <laughs> flying seven threes. So uh, we we've come a long way. I mean, uh, it's still a long ways away from the real thing. But I think uh, for me, especially, like I wish I had a little bit more um, flying under my belt. Cause I've, it's, it's honestly, I have more fun with it now than I ever have. And you actually tried to get me flying when I was at Dowling. That's where, that's where our paths crossed, um, right. was at Dowling. And, uh, we had a friend, Dan, maybe he's listening. He will, after I send this to him, he was more actively flying and they invited me up for a flight in a 152, I think once. 
the door opened or something. I just remember thinking like, I'm glad I slept through that. <laughs> yeah, that, that I was, was not the on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, um, it was a two seater. So I think you may have gotten the invite first. And, um, I think, I think something had come up where, where you couldn't make it. So, uh, Ryan came to Ryan, me afterwards and said, Ryan, hey, what happened was I was napping. I was being, I was being a little tactful there. Something came up. As <laughs> something came up very, um, very pressing. But yeah, we, we lift off the, the runway in the 152 and, uh, the, the door popped open, which is not specific to this flight school or, or anything. I mean, it, from, from what I understand, this can happen to, to older aircraft. It didn't fly open. It wasn't this crazy dramatic thing. It just, the latch in those, um, in those aircraft can sometimes get, um, to a certain point. So yeah, from my understanding, and maybe that was someone telling me that afterwards to make, uh, to make me calm down a little bit. Not that I was over the top. If anything, I was, uh, I was cold because because then the uh, the the window latch was was somewhat <laughs> broken. It was an interesting it was an interesting experience. And to your point, you turned down something that um, probably that would I wouldn't <laughs> would have flown again. Further angst. <laughs> Thankfully, I had done a lot of flight training, and so I was like, okay, well, I know that 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 isn't a uh, a necessary part of this thing staying flying <laughs> yeah. so i'm good but it did make a loud noise and uh, as i say the window latch broke during that same flight and so i was had my arm out the window to attempting to uh to close the the aircraft completely uh, the aircraft See, that would freak completely. that would freak me out i'm not putting and my i would not if I was up there, I was not putting my hand out there. That's for sure. Because it was also, <laughs> yeah, it was like November. So I remember that. I remember it. I do re- regret kind of in a way um, not taking the flying more seriously because I think now more than like I, I've even told you guys how I thought about flying. But, um, you know, I, especially yeah. with the ADHD and everything, it's not and not not to mention the, the financial investment these days that you got to put into flying. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. No, it's huge. And, and I think that... um. I think another thing I'm going to give you another um, kudos here, Dave, because you're you're doing it with this um, this community that you're building. Is hey, you know, Ryan, nice to meet you. What do you do? Oh, I work in aviation. Oh, are you a pilot? You know, and and you get the same thing, Dave. I know that without even asking you, you get the yes. exact same thing. And 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 huge kudos to you know to to pilots. It's a it's a ton of work, and you know, just you know, for the for the sake of the story I was telling earlier, I didn't end up completing my private pilot's license at that time. Cause I looked to the air traffic control tower and kind of started going down that route. I ended up working at an FBO and then I went off to, um, to Dowling where I met you, Dave. And at that point I was kind of in between a bunch of different ideas. That's when air traffic control kind of piqued my interest in, in going down that. I mean, I, I started to show some interest and I think, I think you're right, Dave, I came to you and and mentioned it and you said, well, pursue it. I mean, we're at a school that's got an air traffic control simulator. We've got, you know, professors who are 30 year JFK air traffic control towers, Syracuse um, air traffic control ATCs. I mean, we've got a lot of experience, expose yourself to it. We've got, you know, we've got the um, environment to, to kind of try things out. You know, what was nice is being at an aviation school, knowing that I wanted to be in aviation, I could still not have that exact track in mind and it was still okay. So you can even narrow yourself down in your mind to, well, I'm, I'm interested in this 
in this industry, go to school for it, but you don't need to, to get into your freshman year and go, well, I know when I graduate, I'm going to be working at this company. I'm going to work there for 30 years. Um, you can, you, you know, you can, you can still kind of fumble around if you will, and, and work to work to kind of latch on to, to what you're going to end up doing when you first leave school. So yeah, I mean, the, the financial, you brought that up, Dave, like the financial of flight training. I know when I was flight training back in, I don't even know what year this was, but I was 13, 14, 15 years old, that, that sort of age. It was, it was 150 an hour, I think for a 172, which today is, you know, people are probably looking back at that going, oh, you know, not, not too bad. And, and you're right, except for when you remember that I was 13 years old <laughs> and I was trying to pay for this on my own. You know, I, I, I really wasn't looking to anyone to, to kind of fund this. I wanted to put in hard work and, and pay for it myself. And so you can only make so much basically detailing helicopters. And, and it was a great career. I, I actually still bring it up all the time, including on this podcast, Dave. So like I still talk about it all the time. But you know, when you're when you're that age and you're getting into it, it definitely is tough to do. I wouldn't doubt that hourly rates for flight training has nearly doubled. And I know, I mean, the the equipment that people are training on, it's it's interesting to to learn when people are going through flight school, you know, oh, I'm training on the G one thousand. Or I'm training on, you know, the, this glass cockpit, and so the equipment is even more established and complex. Therefore, the aircraft cost is more. Therefore, the flight schools have to charge more, and it's and it's just unbelievable to know that people are flight training on Cirruses, for example, and they're paying 250, 300 bucks an hour to do it. When you know the the uh, FAA and airlines are requiring the number of hours that they're at, you know, that they're requiring, you've got to, you've got to put a lot of that up front. I know things have changed as of recent and I'm not, I'm not in the airline space, so I won't pretend to know what I'm talking about, Dave, from, from this perspective, but I definitely have had people from my world transition into the airline world that are going to the airlines with their private because the airlines are like, listen, here's what we're going to do with you. We're going to pay for the rest of your training. You're then going to turn around and pay us back in the form of you being a CFI for us, where you're going to train newer hires. And when you've built up enough hours, we'll then put you in the right seat of the E-190 or whatever it may be and work your way up. And by the way, we'll also give you a $60,000 signing bonus or whatever it may be. Again, I'm hearing this through kind of a game of telephone. So I believe a majority of that is true, but no, it um, is. even still, like... It, it is very expensive to go the, the pilot. Yeah, route. and that's why we're going to get into what you do now at some point. Just yeah. a general idea. Like, I'll let you decide what you want to share and not share. But uh, yeah. you know, it's <laughs> it's uh, uh, and I I will admit too. By the way, this is where my ADHD kicks in. Is uh, I want to make a public statement and I want to say I ate my words. So what I mean by that is when I was at JFK with Ryan back in college. Um, if there was like a hawker or like a phenom coming in or something small, I would not just ignore it. I would run my mouth, um, and just let Ryan know how irrelevant these planes are to me because that's kind of where everybody grows up around something. So I grew up around really very light commercial aviation, but, um, I didn't really have the G you had the hands-on GA experience. So you got it from the beginning. So. 
And I, it took, I forget when it officially happened, Ryan. I think it was when I was online service tech at Rectrix. Um, yes. That I remember. Like, yeah, you, yeah, you won't. You have it documented. Um, yeah. So I remember I uh, I shot Ryan a text and I was like, "Yo, this FBO stuff is actually pretty fun." From there, honestly, um, I mean, I still think I would lean more commercial just because I love seven threes and and those type of things. But my favorite play in the world is like a BBJ or an ACJ. The the combination of the yeah. two lineages, um, which you send to Signature, not Jet, when I was in Bedford. Very sorry about yeah, it's that. It's okay. It's okay. Times have changed, of course, right after I leave. But anyways. Just adjust that fuel. Adjust that fuel. We'll park over there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I think, and what you said, by the way, about uh, not having it all figured out. Or sorry, about having it too figured out. It's true because I, very similarly, I thought I would be an air traffic controller at like a JFK by now. And uh, how, what you do to piece together where you're at kind of gets you to where you're going to be. But you don't have no way of knowing that until you get there, you know? So for right. me, I'm very thankful in the same sense where I have the job I was looking for without actually looking for it. You know what I'm saying? It just kind of happened that way. Because I, even for me, I interned at Logan. Sorry, go ahead. I was going nowhere with that. No, no, no. All I was going to say is there's definitely, you know, there's going to be a series of, of some coincidences that, that play into it as well. Yeah. And so, you know, there's going to be things along the line that you can, you can work to build that, that resume and then, you know, once you're, once you're in at that first place, that, that next random thing that I was talking about before that may take you off the direct path to get to your dream could be you planned it that way. It could be coincidence. It could be someone, you know, setting something down on, you know, your, your desk in front of you and saying, this is, you know, this is an option for you, a friend, like, you know, you, Dave, pushing me into um, kind of the air traffic control side of things. I mean, it could be a a wide variety. Is this your way of saying thank you? <laughs> this is a long-winded way of saying thanks, Dave. But but just, you know, again, being open to that being the case and you'll be better off having the more wide variety of experience that you didn't put into your plan because you didn't know those things were there by just allowing it to happen. You can fill a lot of different experience into your life. And I would just suggest, again, if you're on the younger side hearing this, like, do something now. You don't need to wait until you're 18 or, or whatever to, go, to get go in. Go dump some labs, those potty labs on those beach jets. And, and if there's one thing I can stress enough, like you you are not in your career where you should be if you don't appreciate how poorly designed the beach jet was. Like those trunk tanks. Hundred to aside, lab, top oh off the God. trunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then um, so the way you'll know you made it when you're like, you see a beach jet and you cringe a little bit. I think also too where I want to go, where we're going with that is the pilot thing. If that's what I'm hearing too myself. And that's kind of the value proposition for me because I didn't want to ever drop a good amount of money and then not end up making it to the airline I want to fly. And the airline I would want to fly, like I joke about Southwest, but obviously I would want to fly for them. Maybe some country, anybody who flies a seven, three, sign me up, baby. I have thought about things in the past, but like I said, it's, it's just, it's getting there. That's tough. And especially since I, uh, I, I, st- I put in for my MBA, which I'm thankful for. Um, and Ryan, I got to tell you, bro, you would love MBAs. So me and Ryan are, if you couldn't tell the ADD's taken over, I, I joke about that, but we are the same person in the sense where we, we're kind of people managers where, you know, we believe in maximizing the value of our people 
doing that that maximizes the value of your organization and so uh, me and him have had great conversations in the past where you know there's just it's almost like an anti-manager in a lot of ways to the way things run in some aviation organizations these days where it's just the end goal which is the profit um that's that's in line but um i'm sure we'll save some of that for other podcasts as well and i have to i keep meaning to send you but newsflash I i keep forgetting to send to you so um yeah, well, while you were saying that, it does I was thinking the exact same thing. We could we could have a whole separate conversation, and who knows where this one goes, but a whole separate conversation on management, and and in the sense of working with people in aviation, coordinating things because it is an industry where there's so many different segments that need each other that you don't know it when you get into it. There's calls that I've made to you, Dave, that I didn't, you know, when when you went to the airport in my mind, I was like, yeah, maybe our, our roads will, will cross and, you know, maybe we'll chat. At least we're both in aviation and we can talk kind of the same lingo, but from a work, you know, setting, I don't know if I'm going to reach out to Dave for assistance and vice versa. You probably had a very similar thought as well of like, okay, we're both in aviation, but he's working in private side but you've called, you've called me, I've called you, you know, asking questions about, you know, the, the airport that you're at, um, just understanding, you know, hey, I, I saw that you posted a, a runway closure or you guys are closing, you know, both runways tonight at such and such time. You know, we've got an arrival at 2300. How's that going to affect the, the flight and, and vice versa? Hey, I've got someone who's looking for a private aircraft on a flight. How many people have I sent to you? Well, we've got to be nearing 10 plus at this point you know, which, which I'm very appreciative of, but it, it is I still interesting. don't have a hat. I owe you a hat. I will put a hat in the mail literally this week. I promise you that I, I will absolutely do it. Hold me to it. <laughs> no, I think that's, it's so funny. And also to you, I, I don't hide it. Um, you could say I work at Westchester because it, it took me about 18 minutes into the first podcast to say I, I work there. I just, I, I, I keep my employer obviously, you know, all those views and and I keep that in line. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's tough because you have a very different clientele where somebody will call me on the phone and be like, "Okay, before I get into this, actually, uh, Ryan, what can you what can you tell us about what you do for work?" Because it's very interesting. I I always say like, uh, you never know these jobs exist until you meet somebody who does them. So yeah, and this is or is yours. No, I yeah, I, I appreciate it, and we we'll, we can definitely chat about the um you know the the phone calls you've made to me with with people looking for the service that my company provides, but I work. Um, in private aviation, in a world where we don't own or operate the aircraft, but we connect qualified customers to to those Part 135 aircraft operators. And so what we're here for, our company, is to provide the customer service side of things. So we'll arrange the logistics from the time that a customer calls in and says, hey, I want to go from Teterboro down to West Palm Beach. There's three of us. We want to go on Saturday at 9 a.m. And so what our company does is we have a department who their sole purpose is looking at the trip details. If this customer has flown with us previously, looking at their profile, their likes and dislikes for specific private aircraft. And then they go out to our network of part 135 aircraft operators and determine which of those aircraft meet the requirements as outlined by the customer, meet our requirements when it comes to safety, and looks at their schedule, determines their availability, and then once we have that that option, we call it, 
locked down, we go to the customer and say, hey, this is how much that flight is going to cost from Teterboro to West Palm Beach this Saturday. This is, you know, this is some pictures of the aircraft. This is some details about the aircraft because you're working through us. Of course, we're only presenting this to you because it meets or exceeds our safety requirements. Would you like to proceed with this flight? At which point they say, yep, we'd like to move forward. And so as soon as they say go, basically gets turned over to the depart- one of the departments that I oversee, which is the department who sends out the customer's contract to them so that they can sign off on the dollar amount and all the details. And then from there, once all the paperwork, kind of that boring paperwork side is done, we get to do the fun stuff. So working with them on getting all of their passenger information, dates of birth, all of that information onto an itinerary. And then we start working with them on in-flight catering requests, ground transportation requests. And we do a lot of stuff with the aircraft operator as well. Again, making sure that they meet and exceed our safety expectations. And we pull together all of the details from the part 135 operator who uh, their purpose, their specialty is maintaining aircraft and maintaining pilots. And when I say maintaining, it's not just hiring pilots that are qualified to fly the aircraft, but they've got to pay for the recurrency training on those aircraft. They've got to pay for the insurance on those aircraft. It's really managing that whole side of things. So we come together as two separate parties, an operator who's good at maintaining pilots and aircraft with a company like mine, who's really good at service. And we come together and provide that overall trip to the customer. And so we kind of need each other. And when I say kind of, we definitely need each other because they want to fly from New York to Florida. I don't have airplanes, but I've got service people. And so I've got, you know, operations people. And so we can, we can find the airplane. We can make sure that you have an unbelievable, unforgettable experience down to Florida or wherever you're flying. And then the operator and the pilots make sure that that side, the actual doing of the things occurs and and people and, and planes are in the right places when they're supposed to be. And so we're a company that we, we put those things together. There's, there's oftentimes questions of, you know, well, if you don't operate the fleet yourself, you know, how does that all work? And so, you know, what we like to say is we have specific departments and specific individuals whose sole purpose is making sure that those things happen so that we can focus on providing that amazing service to you, the end all user. You know, will we maybe have uh, aircraft someday? It's sure, maybe, Um, but we're really focused on providing really good service to our customers and then handling all of the logistics that the customer would have to handle if they didn't utilize our service and maybe went direct to those part 135 operators. So that's overall what we're doing. We're we're booking the aircraft, we're arranging the in-flight catering and ground transportation with our vendors that we work with in the different regions around the world. Dave, I've set up gondolas in Italy, you know, in, in Italy to take people from the airport to, you know, to their hotel and, and around different places, helicopters in Monaco. I mean, you definitely, there's there's a lot of really cool uh, logistics that we can do all from our desks with phone and an internet connection. And so on paper, it's just phone and internet connection. But like you were saying earlier, surrounding yourself with a lot of good people as well is another kind of magic to making this all happen is making sure that you've got people who care about the customer's requests, take all of them incredibly seriously and make sure that we deliver upon it. And so that's kind of an overview. We're tracking the flight on the day of the flight, making sure everything's where it needs to be. But we're, we're the logistics and service company that takes care of our guests for for the private jet private aviation yeah you were saying earlier how you had something going on in europe 
earlier today because yeah. I was like, hey, Ryan, you want a pod? And he's like, hang on, I'm dealing with some stuff over in Europe. I'm like, okay. That's, I'm, I'm sitting in bed watching Sports Center. I was like, he's having a better day than I am. <laughs> yeah, the day started at um, about 6 a.m. East Coast time today. It was the afternoon in, um, in Europe. But yeah, working on a flight intra-Europe, which right now, summer of uh, 2023, Europe is back. And I said that to Dave just before we... Um, started the podcast was Europe is certainly back during, uh, during COVID, obviously you couldn't travel a lot of places. And so people were having to stay home. And then as, as board, as state borders started opening up, people were traveling to, to Florida and to, you know, that's where they were doing their vacationing. Then the island started opening up. And so around 2021, 2022, we started seeing a lot of bohemian travel, Turks and Caicos, St. Martin, that sort of thing. But the year before COVID, we were really doing a lot of summer European travel. And so that went away during COVID. And now that everything, for the most part, is all back open and everything's, I want to say, back to some kind of normal, Europe is, um, is huge for us um, in the summers. And so we're doing a lot of European travel right now. And so the scenario this morning was a customer was getting off an airline flight and onto a private flight. And so we were just arranging the service that was going to connect the two. And so there's a lot of things, you know, I gave a high level overview of what we do, but a small portion of what I do is the aircraft itself, believe it or not. We work in the private aviation world, but we're really arranging all sorts of things from the time that the person is ready to leave their home to the time they get to the resort or wherever they're going. And so, you know, all of those logistics connecting people from the airline side to the private side is all part of that. And so that's what I was working on first thing this morning. We were just working to connect the greeter, if you will, the person that we had hired to walk over to the airline terminal and, and escort our, our guests from the airline over to the private aircraft. And so we were just putting the greeter in touch with the passengers, which at a very large international airport in Europe was a, was a tall feat and we were able to do it and they connected and are well on their way to their destination. They probably are actually touching down as, as we speak, Dave. But yeah, that's, that's one of those sort of things that we, we do is, you know, the, the customer comes to us and says, here's, you know, here's what I'd like to happen. We work to, to make that happen. Even with things that they didn't think of, we need to be ahead of and, and think of those sort of things. So applying for slots over in Europe, basically almost every airport requires departure and arrival slots. And so making sure that that's all taken care of, oh, you're arriving on an airline, well, you're going to need a way from, to get from the airline over to the private side. And that's not just, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to just say, well, leave the terminal and take a taxi and figure it out. It's, you know, how can we, how can we make sure that we're holding their hand every step of the way and making this again, as easy as possible. Didn't mention it uh, originally, but, um, you know, taking into account it's worth talking about the fact that the cost of this type of service is vastly different from the airline side. And so again, the reason that we do these logistics is, you know, the the, the price point that we're talking about here is is pretty high. And so the customers are are expecting, as they should, this level of handholding throughout the process and making sure that things are as efficient as possible. So again, that's uh that's what I do. I Dave. think that you're you're underselling some aspects of your job because first off, the amount of cool things you do that aren't directly related to aviation are awesome. And also, too, if you think about obviously this is a this is a private aviation company, so you're dealing with 
who has to travel privately, you know, celebrities. So you're dealing with some high profile clients. No, we definitely can't talk about it on the air, but you've told me about having to coordinate a plane going into a hangar. So two people don't be yeah. seen together. There's so much that goes into what you have to do. And I think that that plays into why you have to be such a good manager is you know, at a lot of aviation companies, there's not a need to be a people manager because you're just kind of making sure you're maintaining the status quo, that things are, two planes are hitting each other, that, you know, you, your people are, are just doing their jobs. But for you, you have to maintain a relationship with your customers, your clients, which are also the part 135 operators. You know, you have to build up right. that repertoire. And then obviously your employees who do it. And I will say too, I visited your location once and I was like amazed at how nice you like it's just felt like how organizations are uh, we're shifting into a, a place where people want to work i got that vibe definitely just even though there wasn't many people right. there just being there you could feel yeah. it and uh, i think that goes for that says a lot about you know what, what you guys are doing yeah and we actually um i you you are cordially invited i'd love to have you at the um the new place as well because we just moved into a, another facility yeah, built out our flight operations There's a new um, place? center even more. So I'd love to have you there. But yeah, so again, surrounding yourself with the right people. We're, we're touching upon that, that management subject, which I love, Dave, because one of the things that I wanted to talk about, especially if you get to that management level and you you start thinking about you know well what type of what type of manager am i what type of manager should i be how do i get the most out of you know mm -hmm. uh, the experience for our customers is is think about the fact that you're all trying to accomplish that same common goal the people that are in your department or on your team don't work for you you work for them and so when you start thinking about your role in that perspective, you actually are, are almost at the, you know, a, a different point along the um, totem pole, if you will, where you, you know, you're there to support the team, whether it be they're asking for a, a different system to do their job on or a more efficient system, or if there's a more efficient way or process, you're listening to them, you're understanding their needs, because when someone comes to you and says those things, they're not complaining. They're actually showing how much they care about the, the task at hand, the goal at hand. And so hearing them out, going to your technology department, if there is one, or, or going to whoever you know that is, or, or if it is a process that you wrote and outlined and established and it's not working, owning that and redoing it, retyping, and, and even saying to that individual who may have come forth and saying, can you help me rewrite it? Because it sounds like you've got... A, a great handle on how this should be done. Can can you work alongside me? Or if I were to retype this, could I have you review it first? And that way they've got a little bit of buy-in on the the new process that's going to be established. And so when you're in that that managerial role, the first thing that you need to do is really take take into account the fact that you work for you work for them now. You were part maybe you were promoted as as someone who is a colleague you know, or, or you were doing that role before, which of course sets you up for more success as a manager rather than coming in from the outside and being, you know, put into a managerial role. If you were, if you were in that role before, and then you get promoted up into a managerial role, you having that, that understanding of what they're doing, don't be the manager who became a manager after they were one of, one of the team colleagues and forget where you're, you know, forget where you were and act as if the, these uh, team members now work for you. You work for them. 
whatever they come to you with, they're coming to you because they want to achieve the goal that you want to achieve. Uh, Dave, you and I read the book separately, but we talked about it. The um, extreme, I was just about to bring it up. <laughs> extreme ownership. It, it honestly changed my, and I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a huge sit down and, and cruise through book guy. You, you're awesome at that. And you send me books all the time, you know, Dave, that I should be reading. And I, I, I honestly, sometimes I'm looking at, you know, some, some cliff notes or I'm pulling up the audible and listening through that, which I suppose you can get some of the same stuff out of it. But this was one of those that this is one of those that I sat down and took the time in it. And it truly did change my view of how I manage and, and how everything is a direct reflection of you as a manager. And there is a lot of pressure, you know, to, to be a good manager, you being in a managerial role, you want to be, you know, someone that the, that the team looks up to. And that's of course a huge part of it. And you need to be the one that makes that final decision if there's a, a question at hand, but changing your mindset from these people work for me, how do I get the most out of them? How do I direct them around and make sure, you know, that, that every single person is, you know, uh, doing the absolute most. They're constantly in the red line. And that's what I like to see bees buzzing around the hive. I mean, you can be that person. You're not going to get the buy-in from the team because they're not going to be bought into the goal on the side of the, the customer or the receiver of your service. They're going to be bought into the idea that they need to do a good job for you, which is not where you want them to be. Mm -hmm. Um, you want them to do a good job for the for the customer or, or what, again, whoever the receiver of your service is and be passionate about that. If they're constantly in fear that you're going to come down on them, then you actually are doing the opposite of getting the most out of them. You're getting out of them what they have now learned to be your threshold for what you expect out of them. And they're not going to go above and beyond. They're going to be at that that level where they're in the green and they're coasting along because they know that you're just happy enough to, to not come down on them. So understanding that you're trying to get the most out of your team for the customer or for the receiver of your service and that you work for them. And when they come to you with feedback, you're doing whatever's possible to make their lives easier so that they enjoy doing it. And you mentioned you came to the office and you, you know, the atmosphere. That's a big part of it as well. I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of take care of your people and they'll, they'll take care of your customers. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, I, it's funny. I was just thinking about ways I can bring up Jocko's book. So the, <laughs> the book itself is called the, uh, no, 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 I'm thinking of the other one. Um, the extreme ownership. ownership. Yeah. It's by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. They're two former Navy SEALs and they take pretty much their experiences in the Navy SEALs and translate them to the business world. And they do a really good job doing it. And it's a must read for those of you that want to be managers, because I think in our industry, we deal with the problem of so many type A personalities where it's just the opposite of being conducive to management. You know, right. everything's taken as a threat. You got to be the best in the, in the room. You got to be the smartest person in the room. And it's just not the case. You know, it's a team effort. You have a bunch of individuals and you're not going to be better than them at every single thing. So like you said, if somebody has a better grasp on something, yeah, I'm the same way where it's like, how about you help me out? through this little project, whatever it may be, give them that sense of ownership in the, in the company, because that's really what it's about is giving them a reason for the why. And I feel like a lot of companies I talk to, it's nobody has a why right now. You got to like, even though an airport is an airport, it's not really a company per se, where we're competing with like other stock exchange companies, you know, 
you can't buy stocks in an airport last I checked at least, but, um, (laughs) we are, (laughs) but at the same time, we're a functioning business An airport is defined as a large scale business enterprise. So you want to maximize the value of that enterprise as far as I'm concerned. And I, but I feel like it's not treated that way. You know, you have people that show up to work and um, some like ops guys are, are known to be miserable. You know what I'm saying? They don't have, but the reason is, is because they've never been given that why to their job. You know, you keep the airport operating for these high profile clients. It's better than just going outside and looking for holes in the pavement and saying, well, that's what my supervisor wants me to do. I've done my job for the day. It's just not the case. And I'm trying to at least change that thinking as much as I can, because we should be training our replacements is what Jocko says, you know? Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a threat to your job. Nobody's going to replace you. If anything, it, it speaks to how well of a leader you are. When I talk to Mike, uh, the coordinators or whom, whomever I'm talking to in general, it can be the line guy. You want to pick their brain, see what they know, and 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 really like kind of encourage them to not just check a box. Like like training should never be just checking a box. You know, your next step in your career should never just be, well, it pays more. Like there should be some more context to your why. And I feel like that's really what's missing in aviation right now is is the why to a lot of things. So yeah. uh, and when I was at Dowling, sorry, I'll, I'll finish up the last thing was uh, when I was our baseball team, I played baseball there and we were very good. People always looked at us as the underdogs because we played in a conference that, that was not I guess, up to the the high level that the other Northeast Conference was. So we were in the East Coast Conference, and most of the top teams in the country were in the NE10, the Northeast 10. So, you know, one of the years, um, probably our most successful year, is one of our captains started saying, like, what's your why? Tell me what your why is. Uh, we, we benefited from years of great leadership from my coach, who was like a I call him my Long Island father because <laughs> yeah, like, that's how close I was with him. You know, yeah. shout out to my dad who's not going to take that personally. I hope you need that experience to understand why that why is so important. And this is going to be confusing because I keep saying why. And uh, <laughs> but in general, you know, you, you need that. You, you don't it, without it. You're just checking a box. Right. No, it's um, it's so true. And surrounding yourself with people that are um, even better than you in the role should bring happiness to you, like you were saying, like it should not, if you're taking it as a threat, you're doing it wrong. And so if, if you've got someone that's coming up through on your team who you're like, wow, they're like doing awesome. Yeah. You want 10 more of those type of people on your team. You should absolutely always be preparing, you know, the next person to, to, to take on your position. And in doing so by, by making people as good and better as you maybe were at the position, you know, that's just going to be better off. And again, you're going to be able to, um, to achieve that, achieve that goal. You mentioned another thing, which is so true in so many parts of aviation, which is having each person understand their why having each person, you know, get the feedback that they're doing a great job. If you think about it in aviation pilots, you know, they're getting on board the aircraft. They, you know, are, are greeting the aircraft, uh, excuse me, the passengers as they're boarding, possibly, you know, they're, they're probably if, well, and if they're not in the, in the airline, then maybe they're standing outside the, the cockpit door upon arrival. My point being, 
the only interac- interaction that they're having with the passengers is that short split second smile, welcome aboard, you know, or, or thanks for flying with us. They don't get to know necessarily the impact they're having on each person's life. Same with the flight attendant in the airline world. Think about air traffic controllers. I mean, one of my favorite stats that came up when you and I were at Dowling, and I don't know if you heard this or if this was something that you and I had talked about, but a an air traffic controller handles more lives in a single shift than a doctor will handle in their entire career. Yeah, when you're thinking about it, I mean, each of these planes are holding 100, 200, 300 passengers, you know, arriving in, and there's a ton of them on a radar scope that are being vectored around by you, the air traffic controller, and you don't necessarily know the impact you're having on each of these people. And then let's go to the line service technician or the ramp personnel or the ops people who are seeing these aircraft taxi around. Maybe if you're a line service technician, you know, marshaling them in, laying out the carpet, you're there at the bottom of the stairs to take any luggage from the private aircraft to the the vehicle. Maybe the passenger throws you a, a 20 or something or says thank you and then gets in their car and on the way there you go. So I guess what I'm getting at, Dave, is there isn't a ton of instant gratification in aviation unless you're right. like really close to the source. I get, you know, probably a little bit more in my business because we are so intimately involved with the customer's overall trip. Whereas the part 135 operator is seeing their names when we send them through, seeing the passenger names, dates of birth, approximate body weight, the gender, the TSA um, is requiring all of that information now. And so we send that information to the part 135 operator. So there's their first kind of relation to the passenger. And then the next one is really like the day of the flight. The pilots see them, greet them at the bottom of the stairs. That is pretty much customary on every single flight in our industry, to your point, Dave, that that's happening. And then they're getting on board and they're flying and maybe they never know what the purpose of the trip was. That's where we come into play. And we're, you know, in, in my world, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing is making sure that um, we know what the purpose of the trip is. And if it's a a funeral flight, we're doing certain things a very certain different way on that flight. It's a birthday flight. Well, guess what? The flight attendant's going to decorate the entire cabin for you. Surprise, you didn't ask for that. We're going to do it. And so again, a little bit of different there. But um, and that's why I say I, I get a little bit more of it probably on my end. But there's so much of this industry who doesn't have that instant gratification. And so you're sitting there going, well, I think I'm doing a good job. And so what you're making me think about is the fact that this is kind of on the managers. If you're in a role, and I'm not saying, hey, go after your manager. I'm talking to the managers now. I'm coming at you, managers. Um, (laughs) You need to establish what that why is. You can absolutely have the team buy into that why by asking them what their why is. But you need to establish what the baseline of the role is. Someone who says, well, I don't know if I'm doing a good job or not. That's not their fault. That's the manager's fault. And by fault, I mean the manager needs to take ownership of the fact that they haven't established clear performance metrics, KPIs, whatever it may be, that the, Mm -hmm. the, the person can look at and go, am I on par? Am I going above and beyond? Or am I below par? And someone should be able to self-review themselves, self-reflect and say, eh, I'm performing a little bit below the par because I know what the par is. If I don't know what the par is, I'm going through the motions. And then the manager is going to look 
at this individual and go, I don't understand. They're just not passionate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, what do yeah, they have to be yeah. passionate about? I know you, you, haven't, you haven't trained them. And this is a lot about what the Extreme Ownership book talks about is, I'll give you the next example. If you're working with a new trainee, whether it be you, Dave, at the, at the airport or me in, in my role, if I'm working with a new trainee and you're sitting there going, they're just not understanding this. I don't, they're not doing a good job at learning this information. The extreme ownership book says, no, 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 you're not doing a great job explaining it. You're not doing a good enough yes. job training this material so that this person understands it. And so tailoring your communication, tailoring your, your training toward the individual to set them up for success is how you should be, should be looking at it. And so extreme ownership, there's, there's why it's called that is you, you put, you know, kind of that onus back on yourself as the manager, the team didn't go, do a good job. No, 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 no. You didn't set the team up to do a good job, you know? And, and so it's taking that. And, and again, you know, this is, you know, we, we talk about mental health and the blogs that you've put forth and, and, and that's kind of what a, a big portion of this community is, but understanding kind of that this is kind of a little bit of my hot take of that is, you know, obviously this is for, from the manager point of view, the extreme ownership book, you'll get through the first couple chapters. And I don't know about you, Dave, I got through the first couple chapters and I had two thoughts. I said, whoa, this is crazy hardo. I work in an office. I'm not in the, in the Navy. Okay. Right. And then number two, yeah, I'm not invading. number two was what? I'm not bad at managing. I'm not going to own their problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah, their problems are. Their and by problems. the end of the book, I said, "Wow, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of things to work on. I'm going to get to work on you know training modules, and I'm going to I'm going to. It's a lot of standing in front of buses when it comes to um, when it comes to to management. And if you're doing a good job at you know supporting your team, when something does arrive, uh, uh, sorry, arise, and there's an issue that was caused maybe by members of your team, you need to be the one that runs to the front of the group and says, "Look, that's on me." I'm going to correct it. This is how I'm going to do it. It's going to be fixed by next Wednesday. This is the this is the process I'm outlining. The entire team is going to receive this training, and this won't happen again. Yeah, that's what I got. There's nothing wrong with being transparent. Yeah, and and the transparency is so important because if you treat people like you're hiding them, like the information you need to know, like then they can't answer their why. Like they're like, why am I? Even? Their why is going to be why am I here? <laughs> right. I think uh, to your point about training, it's so true. Is there's so many inadequate training programs out there where you know if people aren't getting it, it's their fault, and that's just not the case. You're right. You have to. Everybody is different. Some people are, are right brain. Some people are left brain. Visual thinkers. Some people are have to see it for themselves. You know. So yeah. you have the creative and you have the strategic, and every person is different. The training should build in some leeway to figure that out. So yeah, when you have people coming on shift that are not prepared, that's a hundred percent on you and you need to take that responsibility and, you know, figure out how can I make these changes? You know, nothing in aviation lasts for 20 years and stands the, the test of time without having to be changed a little bit. And that's kind of where people need to be skeptical of some processes that are, have been around a long time. Yep. It, it's, it's hard to explain until people see it and say, okay, yeah, maybe we should do something differently here. Right. Um, and I had one more point with that and I forgot what it was. So maybe I'll start. No, no worries, but recurrency training. I mean, you're, you're doing it all the time. You, you text me from cities all over the country. Oh, I'm here doing this training. I'm here doing this training. And it's, it's so true. Even the most robust in doc training isn't good enough to keep an individual proficient six months later, 
or a year later. So right. don't create, you know, and I kind of did this a little bit as well, Dave. Like I kind of learned this the hard way. I came out of that reading that book, which going back to that really humbling guys, you've got to, you've got to open up that, that book or, or put the, um, put the audible on as I did. I downloaded the, uh, use the promo code, use my promo code, Yeah, Dave 2023 or whatever the <laughs> yeah. hashtag, not a sponsor, but, um, but uh, but the, the, the Audible, by the way, you can get it where Jocko is reading it. And so it's not even an Audible where you're listening to someone interpret what was on the page. He reads it the way that he wrote it, which is pretty incredible. But yeah, recurrency training, setting up the most amazing in-doc training so that when that person comes through the door, you're all set up for them and you give them a binder with all the handouts. I mean, you, you can do all the things. But if you don't do that again in six months and again at a year, you're going to be right back where where you started. Things aren't going to be as as crisp as they were. And so I think another thing to to go along with training is just like just like a pilot goes through recurrency training, any role in aviation, and I guess any role anywhere, there's an expiration to that individual's knowledge. And you won't set them up for success if you say, yeah, but we trained on that. Oh, you mean in 2020 when I went through my training? That's when you handed me that document and I never looked at it again? That's that's the responsibility of the manager. Yeah, it's unrealistic to expect people to just take information one time. Oh, I showed them this. To your point, again, I learned this the hard way as well. Is So for airport management, there's a lot of AAAE training, AAAE, American Association of Airport Executives. I'm at the conference right now in Erie. Um, so... They have a lot of training that's kind of the, as far as uh, American aviation is concerned, benchmark, I guess. So I did, let's see, two ACE trainings, so airport certified employee, and then the CM training, which is certified member. And the last time I did training was the airport master firefighter. That was two years ago. So I only recently was I like, I feel like I'm getting rusty here. I need to start going back into these books and and starting to pick up where I was knowledge wise, because where I was, was in a good place. Like there was a happy medium there where I was able to take my information base and make quick decisions. Now I feel like some of my quick decisions, I have to go back and start looking things up again. And and that's fine, but you, you, you should be sharper. You should keep yourself sharp as possible. And so, yeah, to answer your point, like, we do uh, monthly training that kind of keep us sharp in a way, but there are things that we could do better for sure to to kind of make sure we're not just checking a box that those four hours we're doing per month are useful to, and not just kind of like, here's what you guys are doing wrong. I expect yeah. you to fix it, you know? <laughs> and I think that goes into any training pro. Like, <laughs> yeah, aviation like or not, You don't not, even give them a, a way to fix it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why I feel like conversations, we're going to, we're going to have a lot of great conversations, Ryan, because the management, there's, there's just endless material out there. And we just talked about one book. I'm sure you've read other books. Jocko has another book called The Dichotomy of Leadership. I heard somebody say that word dichotomy it's the other di- day. Is, do you know which one it is? It, it's dichotomy. Thank you. Okay. Because I was questioning my life after I heard that. <laughs> so he's got another book that's really good. It talks about um, finding the middle between two extremes, like dichotomy. That's what that is. And I thought that was a very good book. You know, we'll talk about that more, I guess, in the future. Yeah. I think, uh, and also too, did you know, my dad told me, I got my dad into Jocko and he's like, you know, Jocko was in Boston doing a speech the other day. Oh, no. He has like these not. speaking tours. This is how much, Je- and me and you talk about Jocko all the time. This is how much he means to me. I would have absolutely taken some time off, went up, paid. I'm sure it would have been a reasonable fee to hear him talk. So 
I guess he's got one coming up in New York. I'll send you the information and maybe we can bro out, uh, you know, the leadership material. There's so much out there. And it's if you can become a good leader in aviation, you're setting yourself so much further ahead of the pack because I just find like there's there's a lot of selfish leaders in aviation. They hide they hide their knowledge base for themselves. So if you become a leader that starts to share what you learn, you're going to put yourself in a position to succeed for a long, long time. And you're going to build, and it's just easier when you have a team full of people that want to work there, that want, that get, that have their why and that they're, you know, they're being trained properly. And like you, you're competing with other companies. I don't have that, that competition, that, that drive. So it's a little easier for me to sit here on my high horse and say like, oh, I have it all figured out. That's not the case at all. It's taking these information and, and really maximizing the value. Right. And that's what it comes down to for everything is just maximizing your value, the company's value, your customer's value. To answer the question of what's my why, I think my why, and this was answered to me in my internship, was walking through the terminal and seeing all these people with different stories. I mean, everybody in general has their own story, but there's really a culmination of it when you're at an airport. Everybody's traveling for some reason, some good, some bad. And, you know, seeing people reunited makes me happy. Seeing people, you know, going off to college, hugging their parents goodbye or whatever makes me happy. Not a day goes by where I'm not reminded of that because like you said, all it takes is just walking down to get coffee in the terminal and seeing all these moving parts and seeing people going on to to their stories, whatever it may be. So for me, that's the why. And I encourage people in airport management to see their airport more than just a couple of runways and planes because it has a purpose, not just in the community, but in other people's lives. And think about how ridiculous flying is in general. Like we make these big tubes fly up in the air. Um, it's magic. How? It's, it's absolute magic. Yeah, yeah no, it's a great, it's a great point. And, and um, it harps back to what we were talking about before with kind of that lack of instant gratification sometimes. I mean, they're in a lot of ways, the, the passengers on a airline aircraft, you know, oh, we're at 80% capacity. There's 170 of them. And it's like, well, yes, mm-hmm. but they're people. And each of them are going on this plane for something. And it's not, not everyone is going to MCO Orlando for Disney World. Are almost all of them? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them are doing that. But some are, you know, going through these crazy life events. And, you know, even in my industry, like, uh, or, or my segment of the industry, I should say, of private aviation, it's sure. Do we, do we have the Instagram level, you know, oh, I'm flying private celebrities, all of that sort of stuff flying with us? Yeah, we have, we have all of that. But I also have mother flying with us whose son is in the hospital and she needs to get to him to say goodbye. And so she's going to take something that she, you know, is going to pay a little bit, you know, higher cost and by a little bit, a lot of bit higher cost to get there because the stress difference between flying privately and and flying commercial going through the airline terminal it's just a lot to you know to to be doing when she's going to do this and so she's choosing to fly privately for that reason and so there's a lot of that sort of stuff that that we do taking patients to to different hospitals taking you know taking individuals to go to their appointments it sounds ridiculous until you understand the fact that they're doing it because their life <laughs> somewhat depends on it. It's not It's not the big leather cushy chairs, caviar, flight attendant popping a bottle of champagne for a majority of what I do. 
there's there's plenty so of that. It's not like the rap music videos. <laughs> there's plenty of that. It's definitely not like the, <laughs> the rap videos. In fact, the amount of people that that are showing that they are flying privately who are absolutely not. Um, we've all seen the the Instagram videos and stuff of um, of people kind of debunking those or, or demystifying. You know that that kind of segment of the, there's these facilities now you can go to to make it look like you're flying privately is um, is so interesting because. The majority of people that fly with me, um, you've never heard of them. And right. they're, they're individuals flying, and this is the tool that they're using to connect with their family you know, or corporations flying with us to, to get their, you know, to get that contract signed off or their agreements being negotiated. There is certainly a level of flash that comes with it, but, um, I can guarantee that mother on board the private aircraft isn't looking around and determining whether she likes the color of the leather on the chair, you know, or, or taking selfies as she's going to, um, her destination. So it, it, it definitely, you know, that that's one of those things where you, you're having an impact, whether you're the person that, you know, is, is maintaining the terminal itself, whether you're marshalling the airplane, where you, whether you're the air traffic controller vectoring that aircraft, you know, the pilot flying that aircraft, you know, or the individual back at base as the dispatcher who's making sure that all the paperwork matches up so that the flight can depart on time. Each yeah. person has that impact to those individuals. And just because you don't get to see it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Absolutely. And Ryan, we're coming up on it. So I'll, I'll uh, I guess, wrap up with this. What's your favorite private airplane again? Ooh, um, Corporate aviation airplane. So I know you're asking me to talk about the Pilatus PC-12 because I love that airplane yes. to death. The problem with this industry is there's so many cool. I mean, every airplane's amazing, but there's some pretty amazing stuff that's that's come about. I mean, Global 7500, G650. I mean, there's some pretty amazing. If you're if you're not going to have me talk about the PC-12, which I think that'll be, I think you said a three-hour podcast upcoming episode. Three hours minimum. <laughs> I'll stick with the PC-12 for now because it's the uh, the Swiss army knife of, um, of aviation. If you're looking for like the l- luxury you know, the, the pinnacle of luxury right now, um, that's not a, a BBJ or a, an ACJ, probably it's between the Global 7500 and the and the G650. PC-12. Uh, I was looking for you to take a stand, Global versus Goldstream. <sighs> All right, I'll play that. I'll play along with that right now. Um, you can get percentages because for me, it's like, it's tough because it varies from the aircraft type. So like the 7500 is just a monster. Yeah. I love it. It's my favorite. But at the same time, I also take a G650 over the regular globals. So it's tough for me. But so I say I'm like 65 to 70% Bombardier and then the other 35 to 40%. I might, yeah, I might be the other side of that almost exactly. So I think the G, so the G650 was, is an enormous private jet. When you get to the global 7500, I know they just, you know, Gulfstream with the G700, G8, um, Falcon with, is it the 5X that they're, these aircraft are getting so large that the difference between a 7500 and a BBJ or an ACJ, it's it's somewhat blurred lines. And I, you know, I love the the Boeing business jet, the the, the corporate jet from from Airbus, the A319, you know, whatever, whatever configuration uh, most popular in my world is the A319 or A3. I think there might be a couple A318s, but A319 CJ is is fairly common when it when you get up to that scale. But I don't know, when you're flying privately, I think there's a certain point where 
the, the lines are so blurred at the humongous scale that you should just, if you're going to go for the global 7,500, I would just think, and this is such a ridiculous sentence to say, I would just think you would go up to, to get into that, that converted airliner world. Maybe that's because that's how, <laughs> that's how I would do it. If I, I was in that position, I would definitely be considering, you know, the, the lineage or the, you know, the, the A319 CJ or something like that. I would go, I think I'm going to take a stance and I'm going to go on the Gulfstream side of things. I'm going to go G650 ER would be the go-to aircraft that still feels okay. like a private size aircraft. And you don't necessarily need to start worrying about, is this thing even going to fit on the yeah, ramp? So this is where me and Ryan will differ. Um, <laughs> no, to be fair, honestly, I think it's like anything else that changes for me. There are days where I look at a G650 and and next to like a 7500 and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong today. <laughs> it's an exciting time. Like you said, there's new aircraft that aren't flying yet that are coming out. The G700 is probably the next one that's going to hit the stores. Uh, I know I put in an order uh, for three of them. So well, I'll keep you updated. I'm still looking for crew members. I'm going to fly it myself like John Travolta. Um, so those are the plans I have for the blog. Just a tax write-off. Um, just charge it. But can accelerate uh, that depreciation you know, I'm, I'm like you <laughs> we'll we'll do we'll do a podcast on taxes too we can talk i can talk all about accelerating yeah, depreciation riveting <laughs> oh, man i'm telling you bro you should really think about um mba someday because this is all stuff yeah. right up your alley you get straight you have a 4.0 it's and it's not just like the that type of stuff it's most of my leadership stuff came from my mba and i guess that would be my last point for this is and I'm not going to stop saying it is for people that let's say you graduated a four year college, you're not expected to put yourself into a corner of what you want to do. An MBA puts you in a position no matter what you want to do. Like if, if Ryan was in his position now and starts to say, you know what, maybe I'll shift companies in a different role. He's prepared just as well as he was the day before. Whereas if you have a degree that puts you in a corner, you know, maybe it's not as applicable to a career shift. You don't know the in the way coming up or not in the way, I should say. That's not uh, in your sights at the moment. So I don't know. Just think about stuff like that because the world needs more good leaders. The world needs more happy places to work. And you could be part of the solution, not the problem. With that, Ryan, any closing words? Just really, again, appreciate you putting this together. Thanks for having me on the um, on the podcast here. I love what you're doing. I'd love to be part of another one. <laughs> um, you know, at some yes, point. Yes, I was going to say this is going to be the first of many. Don't worry. Yeah, about it. no. Just thank you so much. Great conversation, and uh, happy to uh, happy to be thank here. Thank you, man. Well, I appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day, and uh, nice. we'll see you. We'll see you next time.